WomenX on the front lines unpacks some of the most challenging questions we face in our society. Like, what is the real science behind COVID? Why are women investing? Where are the women owners in sports? What is the connection between our ancestry and food? I would like to know those answers. We will answer all of those questions and more with women on the front lines who are working to solve these problems. Connections are core to the human experience, and conversations are where we begin to challenge our own ideas to come to new and better understanding. I'm Mary. And I'm Tiffany. And together we'll go in search of the answers that women everywhere want to know. So pull up a seat at our table and join us on Women Wednesday. And don't forget to visit our website at womenx.org and join our learning platform to delve deeper into the topics that we cover this season. Let's get educated, then get activated. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Ashira Blazer, professor at New York University School of Medicine, where she studies the biologic and genetic determinants of lupus in patients of African ancestry. Dr. Blazer was on the front lines of New York City's battle with the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Blazer explains the science behind COVID, how mRNA works, and the differences between the many types of COVID vaccines. She does an amazing job of breaking down the science behind COVID so that all of us can understand and use it to inform our own decisions. In our first conversation with Dr. Blazer in December of 2020, she explains exactly what mRNA vaccines are and how they work. Let's take a listen. So I'm going to talk about what mRNA is, and then I will talk about why this is used as a vaccine candidate. Okay, so I don't know if you guys remember basic science from when you were in grade school, but in case you don't, all of our bodies have DNA, right? So your body is just a collection of cells, uh, and in those cells, there's a middle portion, and that is the nucleus, and in the nucleus, there's DNA. DNA is where all of the genetic information in your body is uh, coded, right? So imagine it like a big recipe book. These are codes for certain proteins. But in order for us to get to proteins, we have to go from DNA, we have to uncoil the, the big book and just look at the specific recipe that we want. And then we have to code that into mRNA, which is sort of this middle step. And that mRNA can leave the nucleus. It's like a little message that leaves the nucleus and it goes to a protein factory called a ribosome. And then the ribosome converts the mRNA into a protein. This is called transcription and translation. This vaccine is a little bit of mRNA, which is genetic material. That's that middle step. So it is literally the code for a certain protein. It can be made into a protein by your body's own protein factory, the ribosome. So when we talk about ways that you can make a vaccine, essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to give the immune system enough information so that it can make a response to the most important portion of a virus. I always give the example of like a rudimentary vaccination. Like when I was a kid, there was no chickenpox vaccine. So what happened was my cousin got chickenpox and we were all really young. And my mother put us all in the room with my cousin because she knew that when we were kids, our immune systems were strong enough to be able to take care of chickenpox. Maybe we get a little sick, but like 
we'd all get over it. And after we took care of it the first time, our immune system would know what that virus looked like and we'd be protected for the rest of our lives. I got exposed to an active virus and I got sick. So if you put that at 10, actually getting sick with a virus, there are a number of steps before that. Some vaccines are, we're going to give you a weakened form of a virus. That would be like an eight. So we're going to weaken the virus, give it to you. Your immune system can make a response to it. Some vaccines are, we're going to give you a killed form of the virus. So it's a virus, but it's dead. So it can't infect you at all, right? That would be like a six. Some vaccines are, we're going to give you a little piece of a killed portion of a virus, right? That would be like a four. This vaccine is, we're going to give you just the genetic code for a piece of a killed portion of the virus. All right. So we're at a two. This is something that is not even close to live virus that can infect you. However, it allows your body to take that genetic code, change it into a protein. Your body says this protein is foreign, and then it's going to make a response to it. So it actually turns out to be one of us, like the safer methods for making a vaccine. Um, one, because you're so far from live virus. And two, because if you're making that genetic code in a lab, it is very, very cookie cutter, right? It's something that you can control. Like say someone's giving you a vaccine and it's like a virus that they weakened. They grew it up in a lab. We think we got what we think we got. We think it's weak enough. You know, it's not as easy to control, but this is, I know exactly the sequence that I need. I'm giving you only this. I'm giving you cookie cutter copies over and over again. And this is what it is. So it's a very well controlled way of giving you just the minuscule amount that your body needs to be able to make a response. Was that not the best explanation of mRNA? It's the starting point for understanding how COVID vaccines might protect us. She took us all the way back to Bio 101 with a snapshot lesson that would have taken hours of combing through articles. Now, let's take a listen to a follow-up conversation we had with her at the beginning of the vaccine rollout. Just to jump right into the science... One of the things that our community really would like to hear more about and get a breakdown of is these mutations. And in our conversation in December, you all had expected that there would be mutations, especially since it's a global pandemic. So we would really like to hear from you. You did such an amazing job of explaining mRNA and the virus that we would love to hear from you what are these mutations from a scientific perspective? Yeah, I want to start by saying that mutations are expected in viruses, especially RNA viruses. So essentially a virus is, is a strand of genetic material. So there are certain bases that are part of this genetic material and viruses just represent one strand and that's a code for certain proteins that the virus needs to take over a cell reproduce itself, move on to the next. So RNA viruses are notorious for making mistakes when they copy themselves. And in fact, this is how from generation to generation, viruses keep up with having some diversity in their strand. 
So if you think about generations of humans, we all have genetic diversity. We get it by meeting with other humans and you're not the same as your grandfather or your great grandfather, right? Um, so viruses do this too. They get genetic diversity generation after generation after generation. A virus generation is very, very short. The likelihood that mutations accumulate is related to how many times viruses can replicate and in how many different hosts they can replicate, right? So when we think about this COVID-19 pandemic, you know, millions of people have been infected. In one person, there are, you know, thousands upon thousands of viral replications, and then it spreads to another person, and that happens again, right? So, you know, this virus has experienced very many generations. And so we expect that over time, the virus would change. Now, most changes in viruses don't actually change the function of the virus. For example, you are not the same as your great-grandfather. However, you're both still human and you function generally the same way. Most changes in viruses, most mutations in viruses actually don't change anything that is core to the function of the virus. Because if it did, that virus is very likely not able to survive as well as the native virus. We even know this in movies, like the sequel is always worse than the first one. It's much easier to break something. <laughs> That's good when you have a good thing going, right? So that premise principle remains. Now, occasionally, there can be mutations that happen in parts of the virus that are important for its functioning that can improve the likelihood that that virus will survive and will go on to infect other people. And the viral mutations that cause some sort of survival benefit are the ones that end up, you know, competing out all of the other strains of the virus. So we've seen this happen a couple of times, one in the UK, one in South America and Brazil, and one in South Africa. The way that these mutations work is that, so if you think of a virus as as like a key, you know, you could have a heart-shaped key, you could have a circle-shaped key, whatever, as long as the part of the key that fits the lock works, then it's going to work, right? So say there are mutations in like that aesthetic part of the key, if a virus is a key, you know, that's not really going to change anything. However, there can be mutations in the lock part of the key, right? So the part of the virus that's important for it actually entering into you know, a host's body. So for these mutations, like the UK mutation, there's a, a change in that lock part or the uh, receptor binding region. And it makes that part a little bit better at getting into cells than other virus strains. So we think what's happening with these mutations is that they are causing the virus to be able to infect people a little bit more easily. So more transmissibility, which means that they're more likely to compete out other viruses and then the strain sort of starts to take over. You, you mentioned, and this may be a really hard question because I know COVID is completely different, but all viruses are expected to mutate and you all have been tracing mutations for, I don't know, hundreds of years. What is the average rate of a mutation? Right. Oh, man. Now, I, I wrote this down somewhere and I now don't have it. But coronaviruses tend to mutate slower than other RNA viruses. So coronaviruses actually have 
proofreading machinery. So one of the proteins that they encode checks back over the code and makes sure that it's okay. So um, coronaviruses are actually one of the slowest mutating RNA viruses. They mutate much, much slower than flu viruses, way slower than HIV viruses. So on the scale of viral mutations, this one is actually going pretty slowly. It's just that so many people have coronavirus in so many countries and, you know, they're just like literally millions upon millions of opportunities, maybe trillions of opportunities for mutations to happen. And so you end up having them. So that leads me to the next question we have, which is around, so if they're all a little bit different, how does current vaccines, how do you say the efficacy? (laughs) Yeah, so that's a great question. Because the fear with mutations is that perhaps a virus can mutate such that it, you know, the vaccines no longer work. So I'll go back to that lock and key example. There are lots of parts of the virus that our immune responses could target. So say there's a key, think of like a key with like a ridiculously large handle on it, right? Like a beach ball handle, but there's only like a little part that actually fits the lock, right? So you could have an immune response that targeted any part of that big beach ball handle, but those wouldn't be effective because they wouldn't block that little part that's important for the key to fit the lock. So what we do with vaccines is we say, okay, the most important thing to prevent this infection is for the immune response to target just this key part, right? So we take the code only for that key part. And then we say, we're going to feed the immune system, the top of the key, the side of the key, the bottom of the key, the middle of the key. And so we choose all of these, like these sites, these sites are called epitopes, right? And we feed the code for all of those epitopes to the immune system. And that means that our bodies target all of those different parts, any one of which could block the key from entering the lock and getting it. So because these viruses, so say a virus happened and it mutated every single part of that key, that virus likely wouldn't work. Like, like you can't change everything about the most important part of the virus and it still causes an infection. So the, the vaccines are built with a lot of redundancy. So this is why the, the, even though the vaccines were made using the code of the original virus, they're still able to protect us against these variants. The caveat here is that this code is not just like a straight string of, uh, you know, genetic material. It's folded and it, folds into different confirmations and, and that confirmation may change if the virus is trying to get into a cell versus, you know, living in a cell. So the, the Brazilian variant folds a little bit differently. And so it makes it a little bit harder for the antibodies that people make either due to infection or due to, the, to having had the vaccine to actually get into that key part. And I think that's also the case with the South African variant. So it looks like the antibody response that we make is a little bit less good at taking out that strain of the virus. The good news is there's something called a cushion effect. When we give the vaccine, we induce an immune response. So like we make our bodies make antibodies. We make way more antibodies than we need. So just to make the math simple, imagine that you need 10 antibodies to be able to attach to the virus in order to prevent an infection. This 
vaccine makes you make 10,000 antibodies. So even if you're 10% less effective or 20% less effective, you're still much over the threshold that would be necessary to prevent an infection. So, so far, especially the Pfizer and Moderna uh, mRNA vaccines, we're seeing continued efficacy in preventing these infections. So that leads me to my next question. How would a mRNA booster work? Is yes. that additional instructions to help them get through the folded strains that are a little bit harder to unlock? Yes, yes. So essentially, say we end up with a strain that's predominant, that is very, very different than the original strains that we use to instruct our vaccines. We could say, okay, there are these new epitopes. There are these new parts on the key that we need to make sure we target. So we could then go back and make another mRNA vaccine that included the code for those new parts. And then now we can give that to people and instruct their immune response to make antibodies to those specific new parts. Is it possible? And I don't think it is because I know our bodies are complex, but is it possible to have too many of these types of instructions, like where our body feels, you know, overloaded? Like how often can you get a booster? Like, cause you know, I hear things, oh, this is going to be every year or every six months. And is that healthy? (laughs) Right, right, right. I mean, in this case, yes. I mean, we get flu shots every year. Yeah. And the other thing is mRNA is very, very transient. So anyway, if you've ever worked in a lab with mRNA, like it's the worst thing ever. There are mRNAs everywhere. Like mRNA can't wait to go away. Like that's the reason why we have to store it at such a low temperature. So, you know, when you put it in your body, your immune cells are going to pick it up, make a response, and then it's gone. Right. So it's not like you're accumulating mRNA over time. The other thing is you can actually, and this happens more in native infection. So say you get exposed to a whole virus, right? And your body's like, I don't know what part of this is important. I'm going to just make some antibodies. Your body can make antibodies to non-important parts of that virus, right? So we call those non-neutralizing antibodies. So you can make antibodies to the handle of the key and not really do a lot. The other thing that can happen with those is you can have like a paradoxical response. So like you make antibodies to the wrong part of the um, virus and those antibodies essentially rev up your immune system and this over exuberant immune response ends up hurting you or worse facilitating the virus getting into your cells and infecting you right would that be the very few cases of the allergic reactions bell palsy etc how did they manifest okay yeah so that's a little bit different so the allergic reactions we think that the allergic reactions are to one of the additives in the vaccines. So, you know, you can't just give naked mRNA, it would disintegrate immediately. So the mRNA is housed in like these little fat bubbles called liposomes. Some people have allergic reactions to liposomes. So there are other medications that we give in liposomes and like some people just have allergic reactions to that. There was actually a recent, actually, I think yesterday, the CDC came out with an extended safety report that showed that uh, allergic reactions. So four and a half people for every million people who get the vaccine have allergic reactions. So actually very, very low. Mm -hmm. So allergic reactions, a little bit different. Bell's palsy, also different. So Bell's palsy is uh, related to an inflammatory response. So, you know, everybody has, you have like a facial nerve comes across your face like that. Uh, It's one of the cranial nerves. Uh, And 
like it comes past a lot of lymph tissue. And so if you have an immune response and like that lymph node or the salivary gland gets filled up with inflammatory cells, that inflammatory response can injure the nerve. And then you can end up having like a transient Bell's palsy, right? That happens in any number of viral infections or, you know, inflammatory conditions. It hasn't been shown that that's more likely to happen in people who are vaccinated. So these strands are more contagious. Yes. But what we understand, they, that doesn't necessarily mean they're more deadly. Right. So, and that's, I, that's actually, that's a complicated thing to think about. There's a concept called r not. Like, given that one person has the virus, how many people do you expect that person to then infect? The r not for the variant is higher. Hmm. So that means that you expect a person to, who is in, infected to then go on to infect about 50% more people. I mean, if, if you expect that person to infect one or two people, 50% more is like half a person on average, right? Oh, okay. so like, so yeah, I mean, it sounds crazy, but not really if you're talking about a low number, right? And that gets to the, the point that it depends on what you're talking about. Risk is always risk relative to what, right? Say everyone wears an awesome fitting mask and we expect one person who has an infection to infect half a person on average, right? 50% more is still less than a person on average, right? If we are not social distancing, we're not wearing masks very well, right? And you expect one person to infect three other people. Well, 50% more is a person and a half on average, right? So like, so again, it's, it's related to how the virus spreads, but it's also related to what we do. So you know, back in December, there wasn't a lot of information or scientific data research on women who are pregnant. Is there any new information about that? So there will be very soon. There are two ways that the CDC collected information. One of them was the passive report, but they also, in about uh, 1.5 million people, they offered them this self-enrollment. So if they had smartphones, they got the vaccine, they could enroll in this visa. Those people got surveys every day for a week. And then they also got another survey at week three and then week six to see how they did and if there were any side effects. Only 800,000 of those people were, you know, chose to actually take the survey. Unsurprisingly, 70% of them were women because we carry the world on our backs. <laughs> um, so about 10,000 of those people were pregnant. And about uh, 200 people, 260 had a positive pregnancy test during the surveillance period. So that cohort of women will be tracked over time. In the report, they didn't mention whether or not the pregnant women reported more or fewer side effects or anything like that. Um, but we, we are assured in the report that that data is forthcoming. That's a nice size number of people. Yeah, it's a good number of people. Yeah. If you think about the overall trials, the clinical trials, there were 30,000 people in each trial and two thirds, I think, got the vaccine versus, you know, didn't. So a sample size of, you know, 10, 11,000 is actually very good. 
it's interesting. My best friend is a ER physician here in Atlanta, and she gave birth in November and received the both doses of the vaccine probably in January. And she's now back at work, but she's breastfeeding. And so I, we, we were talking about this last weekend and she said, I have tons of breast milk. I wonder if my newborn baby has the antibodies and if I should be giving it. She also has a four-year-old. And if she, oh, I, see. I could give the milk to the four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, what, what do we know about that? Like, is it? Yeah. So, so I don't, again, that data is not really out there. No. If I had to suspect, I would think that you would not have antibodies in the breast milk. The reason for that is there are different kinds of antibodies. So there are antibodies that are predominantly in the blood, like IgG and IgM and IgE, and they have all different effects. But the ones that are secretory, meaning the ones that end up in our secretions, like our saliva and our gut and our breast milk, are IgA antibodies. We make those most strongly when our mucosal surfaces, like the inside of our nose or our mouth, are exposed to a pathogen. And then the immune response starts there. When you stick a needle in someone's arm, you're going to induce an IgG, IgM, IgE immune response, but not necessarily an IgA response. So just based on my scientific knowledge, um, I would expect there not to be much in the way of antibodies and breast milk after you get vaccinated but I'm sure that study is ongoing. Well, that's really interesting. I'd like to move on to the rollout. There's been a lot of noise and a lot, it's hard to make sense of anything. So coming from the scientific community that I know that is working so hard to get everyone vaccinated, mm-hmm. can you share shed any light on uh, the issues with the rollout? Yeah, I do not appreciate (laughs) the way that this rollout is happening. There are lots of issues with equity. And I am getting extremely annoyed with all of the reports talking about how black and brown people don't want the vaccine. However, we are not distributing the vaccine equitably. I think what we have to understand is that trust is a very grassroots organic process. So If you are of a community that is culturally congruent with most health experts and most of the talking heads that are coming out saying this vaccine is safe, you're probably more trustful just on that word. However, in black and brown communities, we don't have a lot of culturally congruent representatives. So the more that we are able to vaccinate people who want it, who are of diverse communities, the more we increase trust and the more that we increase the population of people of all backgrounds who are willing to get it. There's not that big of a difference in the likelihood that someone wants to be vaccinated. That is a problem with distribution. What I was afraid of was that this narrative that black and brown people don't want the vaccine would be so loud. And then when people didn't get vaccinated, we would blame it on the people themselves. The quote, you know, if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say that you enjoyed it. You know, it's just, it's, it's that all over again, because I, there are lots of people who want it, (laughs) but they're not being offered it. You know, there are a lot of problems with the vaccine being distributed to these sort of ivory tower, like 
you know, medical facilities, um, hospitals, academic centers, right? That's not reaching out into the community, being distributed. The appointments are being made via smartphones or online appointments. People who don't have access to that technology are less likely to be able to make an appointment or know where to go. Yeah, this was an issue that I I was ranting about around testing because there were these, and to me, it didn't make sense. There were these websites that you'd go to and then you'd try to make an appointment and there was no appointments for weeks. And I I, I was just like, it's so easy. Make a TikTok, you right. know, like here are all the ways and how you go about it. And it, it's like, right. if they really want people to get vaccinated, they will find ways to get the information out in a way that everybody can understand it. But it, it's, it's a lack of really. And this, yeah. And this is the thing that doesn't make sense to me because like when, when the pandemic was going on, New York state had all of these programs to prevent food insecurity. Right. And I would get these emergency alerts on my phone automatically sent about where to go to get food or or even when there's a snowstorm and there's an emergency alert that you shouldn't be driving like that comes to my phone automatically we have the infrastructure right why make someone jump through hoops figure out where to go and what site and all that like couldn't we just tell people it's a whole mess That makes so much more sense to me. Remember, we spoke with Dr. Blazer in early February. She so eloquently pinpoints that the science community had a key opportunity to consider the existing mistrust some communities have with the information it shares. Addressing the fears and concerns surrounding this virus and vaccine should not have been an afterthought, but rather a responsibility taken intentionally before any plans were put into place to distribute the vaccines. It's hard to regain trust once it's lost. And I believe that the inequities in the early stages of the rollout is what makes it so hard for the vaccines to reach everyone. You're so right. We have a lot to think about and process now that we know the science of COVID. Thank you so much for listening to our show. To see the full interview, visit our YouTube channel. Just type in Women X in the search bar and click on our blue icon. We would like to give thanks to our special guest, Dr. Blazer, for your willingness to share your knowledge with us. You dropped so many gems and we're so grateful to have you as a trusted source of information in our WomenX community. A special shout out to Joy Nesbitt, the artist whose music is featured in this episode. She is a talented jazz-influenced neo-soul artist from Dallas, Texas. The song we featured called Joy is from her album, Another Day in Paradise which you can find on Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at WomenXCommunity for your fill of women's history and news. And if you want to help us grow, be sure to rate and review our podcast. Till next episode, consider dropping in on the next WomenX Community event. We look forward to meeting you. Bye. to bring joy back